said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Hey there, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Tangentially Speaking. I uh, just wanted to throw in a couple things here before we get started on this episode because it's sort of a special episode that I recorded with my buddy Yvonne um, about six months ago when I was just uh, thinking about doing this podcast. He had some recording equipment and I went over to his place and uh, he set everything up and we just talked about Sex at Dawn, the book. Uh, he asked a lot of questions. So it's it's a different uh, sort of podcast than what you might be used to. It's it's to the extent that it's an interview, I guess I'm being interviewed by Yvonne. Um, he asked really good questions. Uh, so if you've read the book or even if you haven't read the book and you don't even want to bother, this is a good way to sort of find out what it's about and and uh, he asked me a lot of the sort of questions I get uh, when I do live presentations or sometimes when I uh, people send me emails uh, objecting to things or trying to clarify certain points. Um, anyway, I just wanted to let you know. And if you hear me talk about uh, different names for the podcast, I think at that point we were calling it Kitchen Table Confessions or something like that. Or I think another name we were tossing around was um, the Festival of Dangerous Ideas or of Dangerous Notions or I don't know what the hell we were calling it. But anyway, just so you won't be confused by that. Uh, also, I want to take this opportunity to thank our sponsor, uh, Sure Design T-shirts. They're very cool. They're based in Thailand. And um, we got in touch with them through Duncan Trussell. They also sponsored Duncan's podcast. And uh, we've got some T-shirts being printed up even as we speak. So once those are available, I'll let you know and uh, let you know where to order them and how much they cost and all that sort of stuff. I'll put some photos up somewhere. Um, also, you might want to check out my new webpage, chrisryanphd.com. That's where I'm going to start basing everything from now on. I've been using sexatdawn.com until now, but... Since I'm writing a new book and uh, doing the podcast and starting to do a lot more TV stuff and um, other projects underway, I decided to set up my own sort of personal website so that I'm not dependent on that one, you know, book title forever. Uh, I just did a TED Talk last week. It's not online yet, but I'll announce it here once it's up. Uh, also on Twitter, I'm Chris Ryan. PhD. I guess that's what my Twitter handle is. And uh, all this stuff is at chrisryanphd.com. You can check it out there. All right. Thanks. On to the podcast. Hope you're doing well. Welcome to the first episode of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas podcast with Dr. Christopher Ryan. This week we'll be with Ivan Tukakov. Tukakov. How the fuck do you say your name anyway? <laughs> The proper way is Tutsakov. Tutsakov. We'll be with my Serbian buddy, Ivan Tutsakov, uh, who's got great recording equipment. So uh, I probably sound clearer today than I'll ever sound again. Ivan has just pointed out that this is Friday the 13th, which seems an auspicious day to, uh, to get rolling with this. 
I've called the, the podcast Festival of Dangerous Ideas, fully aware of the fact that I may well receive a cease and desist letter from Australia at some point, because there is a festival in, held at the Sydney Opera House every year, and I was invited last year. It was fantastic. Uh, never imagined I'd be on stage at the Sydney Opera House. You know, I don't play any instruments. I don't sing. How on earth would I get to the Sydney Opera House? But there I was. Anyway, so I'm shamelessly stealing their, their, their name because I think it's a great name and they're only using it once a year. So let's just say from the get-go, uh, they had it first. I love it. I'm stealing it. If they don't like it, they can send me a letter and I'll change the name. Great. I love the fact that you use the word shamelessly because that's what we're going to be talking about. Shameless. Today. Well, that could be another name for the, the podcast. Shameless with Dr. Christopher <laughs> Ryan, right? Or whatever. Okay. So let's get into it. Yvonne, okay. what do you have to say? So <clears throat> a few things. Oh, let's see. I think that uh, like whenever people talk about the book or uh, when they talk about what kind of different research you're doing or whatever different books you might be working on or projects, there's always uh, different types of questions that come your way. What I was interested in talking to you about it is two areas that questions can go toward. One of which is more, what is your research about? What are the facts? What is What did you discover? And then there's also the other side, which is tell us what to do. You know, And I think it'd be great to actually kind of separate the two and address both independently. So when we're talking about something to actually be like, this is just facts. Right. And it's, it seems to me that to a large degree, uh, you guys are saying we, that you're presenting facts and that people need to kind of use the facts to hopefully make their lives better for themselves. But then sometimes there's also areas where considering that you've done so much research, it's almost like people are curious, well, someone who's learned so much about this field uh, because you know so much, you're in a better position to be able to say, well, this is a good idea to do this, right? And that's why I think people come to you with a question of, well, what are you doing? Because if you have all this ex expertise and the knowledge, then obviously you'll make, hopefully, the right decisions to live a lifestyle that they'd be like, oh, well, we want to know what that lifestyle is. Hmm. But there are two different conversations right. or topics. Make right. sense? Yeah, it does. You're starting off with precisely the thing I'm least interested in talking about. But <laughs> <laughs> I guess, well, there's more. I guess there's that's more. your job, Mike fucking Wallace. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I get that a lot. I mean, I started getting that actually before the book even existed. All right. Oh, wow. Wait, that whole thing started when we were pitching the book to publishers initially and as part of the the process when when publishers are potentially interested in your book proposal um, you get on the phone and you spend an hour talking to the editors who are, are considering purchasing the the book um, and that's a question that came up a lot i specifically remember with penguin uh i really liked this editor he was really he was funny and smart and knew a lot of the research that we talked about in the proposal and um but he said to me on the phone okay i get it this is the way human beings are let's just say i believe you you're right now what okay and I said, well, uh, that would be book number two. And he's like, no, no, that's, that's, that's part two of book number one. And I said, well, I don't know what. I don't know what, you know. And 
I've consistently stuck to that. Yep. You know, I could have, we could have gotten a lot more money if we'd agreed to write a prescriptive book, if we'd agreed to say, okay, you know, here's the way it is and here's what you should do about it. Here are the five steps to a, you know, lasting open marriage or whatever it is. But to me, it seems like Karl Marx was a great analyst of capitalism. He, he provided the best understanding the best route to understanding how capitalism works but he really fucked up when he started telling people what to do about it right communism doesn't work and so people people have consequently dismissed marx's scholarship because of the failure of cap of communism yep yep so people say look oh marx oh yeah he's so smart you know look at russia look at cambodia look at you know whatever but that has nothing to do with it. That, that's just because he overstepped his knowledge, right? I don't know what someone should do with this information. And honestly, like you just said, you're in the best position. Not really, because sometimes I've gotten lots of emails from readers, hundreds and hundreds of emails from readers. And, and some of my favorites are the ones that come from people who say, this is great. I'm, I'm in my early 20s, and now I can not make the mistakes I've seen so many other people make because yep. I know this is me. This book speaks to me. This is the way I am. So I'm never going to promise someone something yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I can't do. Okay. So I'm not going to dig my, myself into that hole, right? Okay. I'm 50 years old. I'm married. You know, Maybe I'm not in the best position to put these things yeah, into yeah. action. You know, it, it depends where you are in your life, if you've got kids, if you've, you know. There's so many factors. Yeah, it's totally, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, 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 so... Having mentioned Karl Marx, okay, then I'm going to go straight for the for for some of the thoughts that I had earlier that I wanted to talk about. One of the things that that it seems to me that is a bit of an issue in our society, it's the fact that humans have not evolved to function well in in, in gatherings that are bigger than a couple of hundred, right? Right. So my question is, is it even realistic to imagine that humans are going to be able to pull off a, like a, a nice, um, healthy, if you may, way of connecting and uh, being able to resolve these issues. If we're living in such a uh, society where we're we're surrounded by thousands, if not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, yeah. and and it seems to me that it's one of those. It's like. Uh, and th- this is not necessarily finding a solution. Like uh, one side is kind of like, okay, well, here I'm in the middle of a city. And I love the idea, but it seems to me that I need to be living in a small gathering where I know everyone, uh, you know, uh, but that's just not the case. So right. that's, that's kind of like the pragmatic solution, right? But more like if we look just at the facts, how would a human function within this kind of a, a setting? Additionally, and this is something that like even like uh, I know, and this is something that like uh, that I was going to talk about some of the reviews that you've got before, which is Bonobos. Or is the bonobos? There's a British American thing there. Oh, there's a Serbian too. Oh, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Bonobos. Oh, bonobo. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so like for them, like they've never been seen uh, um, uh, being violent before, right? Well, but, they've been violent. They, they they can be violent, but they've never been seen killing another bonobo or my, raping another exactly, bonobo. Exactly. But my question yeah. is, if they were, like, have they ever been stacked? 
in an environment where there's thousands, thousands or tens of thousands of them all living around where there's scarcity and all that. Mm-hmm. Have they ever been in that environment? Because that would be for me a control group. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so what I, where, I'm getting, where I'm getting with this is one of those uh, things where it's like, okay, I understand that we function really well, but I'm also very aware of the fact that I'm not in that environment. Right. So even though I'm not in that environment, knowing that humans are pretty resilient and they figure things out, uh, what are uh, what, what are uh, uh, are we screwed here? Basically, that's the question. No matter how yeah. much we know the facts, right. Can we do something about it? Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, you know, I mentioned Marx. The other the other uh, metaphor that that comes to mind often is is that of a doctor, right? You know, if if you come to me and I'm a medical doctor, you come to me with symptoms, uh, and I say, yeah, I can identify this. I, I see what the problem is. But I don't have a cure. Does that make me a bad doctor? Should I not mention it? Right? Is that yeah. half my job? Gotcha. I don't know. I, and and I honestly feel um, pretty hopeless about a lot of this, despite the fact that my own personal life has been marvelous. And yeah. you know, so I, I I'm not. <laughs> I sometimes talking to people, I say like like I'm an optimist. You know, my core is optimism because I've had a really good life. My parents loved me. I never really have suffered very much. So I've got a pretty positive view of life. I wrote this book. It became a bestseller. You know, it's like I threw one dart bullseye. And that's not because I'm so brilliant. It's because I'm fucking lucky. I recognize that. Right. So. So there's a very strong sense of of optimism in my perspective of life. But on the other side, you you know, on the next level, I see that life sucks for a lot of people, for most people, in in heavy ways, you know. And and I remember reading a Tibetan monk, I think it was uh, Shambhala, the book was called, by uh, Rinpoche, uh, Troigyum Chungpa Rinpoche. And he talked about how people think, Buddhism leads to a state of constant happiness, and that's wrong. What it leads to is a state in which you're never 100% happy, but you're also never 100% unhappy, because your happiness is always cut with a knowledge of suffering, and your suffering is always mixed in with an awareness of happiness and beauty. So you sort of get to this state where where you're steady because you are always aware of both sides, you know? So, you know, and then talking about the level. So I've got the personal level of optimism, then a sort of intellectual, philosophical level of doom and gloom and thinking that we're about to, you know, we're, we're circling the drain as a species. Yeah. We're destroying the planet. We're, you know, we, we live in these hopelessly alienating societies and... and and the best we can do is is form little pockets of health in in what is really a pretty pathological social environment. And, and the way I understand it is that creating the pocket of health is more accepting where you're at. Well, it's partly really accepting where you're at, it, yeah. and it's partly applying, I think, lessons uh, from looking at how we lived before we lived in this pathological social condition, right? But anyway, and the last level is that ultimately I'm an optimist because I don't think any of it fucking matters, 
right? Because, you know, here we are in this little planet in the middle of a huge universe and, you know, whatever. It's either an illusion, it's a dream, it's, you know, who knows what it is. It's a bubble. The bubble bursts. Who really cares? The bubble theory. Yeah. Yeah. So now now the the application thing, I mean, it's like, you know, I I get a lot of response from people saying we're not animals and, you know, this has nothing to do with us. We're not bonobos. But it's like if you you're talking about bonobos in in captivity, you know, have bonobos ever been under these sorts of stresses and that this and that. And, um, you know, if you're building a, a zoo. And you're building the bonobo or the chimpanzee or, or, you know, an enclosure for any animal. What you're going to do is study the way that animal lives and the environment in which that animal lives. Exactly. And you're going to create an environment as similar as possible. So I think that's the way we need to look at our own lives. You try to bring as much of that naturalistic environment as you can into what is ultimately well, very the issue here, life. though, say if you had a bunch of uh, bonobos in 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 a zoo, right, and you found out that they actually function so much better in in the wild, just let them loose and go there. But they're gonna stay in the zoo, for example. How can you make their life better in the zoo if you know that they're not gonna be going out there into the well, wild? That's, that's the thing. The, that's the essential. You got to study here. the ones who do live in the wild and and try to replicate those conditions. So, for example, if you know the food they eat, you're gonna try to make sure they get that same food. The way they okay. interact, the size of the social okay. groups. Okay, that gets me to my like the, to the source of the what's the word source of the. The crux of the matter? The, or as I say, the crutch of the matter. The, cr- the crutch of the matter? <laughs> uh, in, in order for people to function better, if you may, or to have more like connected lives and more rich lives, the premise of what I would say, even the book Sex at Dawn says, is that if you have more sex in any way, it's kind of one of those more essential human needs in life. If you have more transparency and honesty around it, if people share more about it, it seems it seems that that will actually create a more whole and better and fulfilling life than if it's something that's being hush hush, that it's being not talked about, or even more so something that's being denied or being like totally cut off from one's life. Could that? And this is kind of like uh, 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 literally in between the kind of uh, pragmatic versus factual claims, right? It's kind of like. Or uh, you know where I'm going going with this? It's kind of like can you, can we state to say that if people actually went there, that their life would be better? Well, no, no. And 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 the way you phrased it, if if people had more sex, they'd be happier or whatever. I would never say that. But what I would say is the second part of of your statement. I would agree more with that. That if we remove the sense of shame and uh, you know the the hang-ups that we have around sex it doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna have more sex you know so, you know hey some of the hottest sex around is the you know probably had by the people who have the most guilt and shame around it right <laughs> Frank Zappa's Catholic girls you know if you ever <laughs> listen to Frank Zappa but you know it's like you know who who is having hotter sex than the priest and the nun who sneak out into the woods behind the church you know Gotcha. Ah, so, you oh, okay. know, so that's another like- whole thing to talk about. But so, so no, I don't think people are going to necessarily have better lives if they have more sex. But I do think that people have better lives when they are not afraid to put things on the table, talk about them openly, okay. and be real about who they are. Now, there's a whole spectrum. There's a whole range. You know, lots of people are completely happy being 
monogamous their entire lives. Lots of people are completely happy having no sex whatsoever. Lots of people are, you know, people have all sorts of different appetites. So we are, this is one of the problems with getting prescriptive, right? That you have to incorporate all these different, you know, perspectives and you can't possibly. Okay. Well, I'm actually very curious about the whole shame thing because I actually remember when I was, especially when I was reading the book, there's in one chapter, you specifically talk about certain societies that accept shame and work with it. And that shame is actually one of those things that can really get people in a place where they are, um, they integrate into society better if they if they know how to deal with their shame when it comes up, or like even more so. I think I'm pretty sure that you're right about well, this. shame as a social control, as a yeah. as a way of managing people's behaviors, very very strong. Yes, and it can be used as I think some of the societies you're referring to that we talk about in the book. It can be used. Uh, to minimize destructive behavior, like, for example, with jealousy. I think we talk about it a lot, okay. where it's like being jealous, trying to control someone else's yeah. sex life is seen as ridiculous and shameful. Whereas in our society, it's seen as an indication of true love, you know? So I've, I've heard women's, I've been with women who have said, you know, I, I don't believe you love me because you never get jealous. It's like, Really? So jealousy oh, heard that one, to yeah. them is an indication of love. And if you don't get, you know, enraged and freaked out every time she talks to another guy, you don't really love her. That's a cultural thing, you know. Okay. Is it a cultural thing? Because yeah, because most would... of those women were Latinas. Okay. <laughs> and there's certain other group that would yeah, never go or, there. Or North Africans. Yeah, yeah. Moroccan, Tunisians, or... Yeah, so uh, I do think it's it's very cultural. Yeah. yeah, okay. You probably won't get that from a Swedish woman, you know, or a Danish yeah. or a Dutch, or, you know. But someone might claim, well, then that means that they're just indoctrinated by their culture, but the Latinas are more in tune with their natural selves. Someone could claim that, yeah, yeah. or you could claim the opposite. But this but, And this you know. is where you go with the book. Right, right. This is where you're saying, it's like, well, let's remove all these things and see how far we can get with observing the human as much removed from all these cultural influences as possible but how is like th yeah. then you're like getting yourself in like on, on, on a bit of a thin ice with like with well but see that, yeah that's not exactly what we're doing though um i understand how people read it that way and and we may have even slipped into that in in some parts of the book I, I'm, i'd have to go back and look but really what we're doing we're never saying that human beings have existed without culture, right? Okay. So we're not saying, if you look at hunter-gatherers, you're looking at the human being unencumbered by culture. Okay. Because they had culture. They, okay. they, every human being who's ever lived has had culture. Because by definition, human beings are these highly intelligent, highly social animals that just yeah, by being together there. create yeah, yeah, culture, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so we're not talking about the pristine example of human beings existing without culture. What we're saying is that there are great commonalities between hunter-gatherer societies, right? That's established. There really aren't anthropologists that I'm aware of who deny that, right? They, and so these commonalities tend to be they're highly egalitarian. Female status is, is relatively high compared to what came after agriculture, often equal to uh, the status of men. There's a very high level of individual autonomy. People don't try to tell each other what to do, or if, if they do try to tell each other what to do, they're unsuccessful. And what we 
show in the book is that those things, it's not that there's a nobility or something. It's just that that's the way hunter-gatherer social organization develops because of the economic context and the ecological context where people are out gathering food and it's shared because that's a way to minimize risk. And, you know, all these things arise spontaneously out of that way of living. And what we're saying is, Look, 95, at least, depending how you calculate it, but at least 95% of our existence as a species was in this type of culture. Right. So we're not saying it's without culture. We're just saying that's really relevant. So if there's anything that we can surmise about hunter-gatherer societies based on these different sources of data that we look at in the book, that's really relevant. Even more, you know, you could say, okay, post-agricultural stuff is relevant, too. It is. But the relevance of that comes about from its proximity to us, right? Not from its volume. So in terms of the volume of human experience, 95% or more has been in the hunter-gatherer context. Great. So here, I'm going to poke here a bit. That's the right word. So... Why is, in that case, someone like Steven Pinker not interested in, in involving himself in this debate, you think? With me. For example, yeah. Like, like if, if, because what you're coming and saying is that, okay, here we are like, trying to get to the bottom of what's going on, right? Right. And you're hoping that people are, like, as scientists, going to be like, okay, let's put everything on the table and look at it and see if we can get the clearest pictures possible. So why isn't everyone just being like, yeah. Like, let bring it on as much as possible. Why would he not be interested? It seems well, that he hasn't responded as much. He, yeah, he hasn't responded publicly. You know, someone like Steven Pinker is really, really busy. Okay. You know, I'm really, really busy. Yeah. And I'm not teaching at Harvard and, you know, on TV yeah. every week, right? Yeah. So I can just imagine what it's like for him. So you pick your battles. You know, why would he spend his time arguing with someone who, you know, if he read the book, he sees that on the particular issue that we disagree yeah, with yeah. him on the, his presentation and his writings about the yeah, war yeah. and prehistory. I mean, we do sort of have him pinned to the wall there. Yeah. You know, but so he's not going to enter into that debate because if he sees what we wrote, he's going to see like eh, they got me. That's one thing. The second okay. thing is what's in it for him, right? Who gives the a truth? shit? Ah, come on. But isn't that isn't that the noble thing of any scientist? It's kind of like when a medicine a person who goes into medicine, they have that vow or whatever it is, yeah, you know, yeah. I'll serve whatever, no matter what. Wouldn't the scientist's way be the same way? It's like, I'm in it because I want to get to the bottom of what really is. Right. True. Ideally, sure. But, but still, that doesn't mean that. You know, you've got time to respond to everybody who argues with every point. You know, case in point, it's a year or more since this review came out in evolutionary psychology uh, critiquing our book. And you've been bugging me to respond to it. And I've been saying, A, I don't have time. B, who cares? I don't really want to get into this sort of pissing contest, you know. And C, um, what was C? God, I feel like that uh, presidential candidate. The, the, remember that guy from Texas? And C, <laughs> shit, I can't remember what C was. Let me take a drink uh, from my okay, uh, Paps that. Blue Ribbon, the yeah, ultimate thanks for, thanks ironic. For bringing, thanks for bringing the beer. Yeah, yeah. It's not we should probably market. do some apples with it at the same time. Yeah, okay, C, C okay. was that it's, you know, these issues are so big that, 
there's no resolution. There's no, it's not like a court case where, you know, you present the two opposing sides and some judge somewhere says, okay, that's decided. Now let's move on. That's not how science works, right? So science works by people arguing, people presenting different arguments, different data points, different points of view. Sometimes the data points shift underneath them after they've already made arguments. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute. We thought that uh, swans were monogamous. Turns out they're not because now we've got DNA testing and they, you know, they act monogamous, but turns out, you know, these chicks aren't from that male. So, so science is messy. And so someone like Steven Pinker or whomever isn't going to isn't going to respond to every critique, yeah, yeah. you know, because they don't have time. And B, it's not going to resolve the issue anyway. Just like me responding to this review in yeah, evolutionary yeah. psychology is not going to prove I'm right or he's right or whatever. It's just going to further the conversation. So, you know, that's what I've talked to you about this book, Finite and Infinite Games. You remember that? Okay, I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, James Cars, I think, is, is the author. It's a really interesting book. He says... All of life can be broken down into finite and infinite games. Finite games are games you try to win and finish. Infinite games are the games you just try to keep rolling along. So a marriage is an infinite game. You don't want to win. Nobody wins in a marriage, right? That's not even the point. Right. A friendship, uh, a job that you enjoy, you know, whatever. Most of your relationships, you want them to be infinite games. You want it to keep rolling and rolling and getting more and more interesting. Whereas a finite game, you want to win it. You want to prove you're right. Science is an infinite game. Okay. Right. So um, now, noble scientists, Franz Duvall. Yeah. I think I might have told you the story. When we were finishing the manuscript, I wrote to Franz Duvall and said, look, I really, he's the best known primatologist other than Jane Goodall, probably, and the number one expert on bonobos and chimpanzee politics. He's written lots of books, teaches in Atlanta. Um, Anyway, I wrote to him, I said, you know, we really respect your, your work. We're writing this book in which we disagree with some of your conclusions. If you're interested, I'd be happy to send you the passages in which we talk about your your work. And if you think we're being unfair or inaccurate, I'm open to hearing what you have to say before it goes to press. So he said, sure. I sent it to him. We went back and forth a few times. You know, well, you know, him raising, have you seen this study? And what about this and the other? And I responded. And then in the end, he just said, well... You know, you might be right. Uh, these are the All sorts right. of questions that uh, that need to be asked, and you certainly have an interesting book on your hands. All right. Okay. Now that to me is a scientist. But that's that's what I'm. That's where I'm going with this. That's like those kind of stories. That's what I'd love to hear about when people are actually. That's the open mindedness of right of any scientist. Because if you close yourself off to any ideas, then you're just kind of closing. As you said, then you're staying in that yeah. final. But that's a rare, rare guy. Okay. You know, I mean, you might say that's the what science should be, but that scientists are human beings. And you, we're working with humans here. So at the working end of the with day, humans. It's a bunch of humans who are raising the society and have their own path yeah. in a and, way, and, right? and, and, you know, science is very competitive. These people have positions at universities. They've got colleagues. They're powerful people they don't want to offend. They don't want to look silly. So it becomes silly. politics more than science at some point. If you yeah. Know. Somebody said, I don't remember who it was, but somebody said the reason academic disputes are so nasty is that there's so little at stake. <laughs> 
you know, and it's true. That's why I never wanted to teach at the university level. You know, I, I have, but yeah. every time I've been there, it's like, really, really? We're wow. going to sit in this faculty meeting and you people are going to get so bent out of shape about what? It's wow, ridiculous. Okay. Because when I was organizing the event for you last year, I was amazed by the, the amount of disinterest that universities showed in wanting to support an event like this. And I was like, yeah. wow, interesting. Like, what's going on? Like, why? You know, it's like they're compelling ideas. But sometimes it's like, as, as people say, sometimes any idea needs to... Uh, kind of like take your time to flourish and people for me it almost seems like all these ideas that you're presenting is just like you can't do it on your own it's kind of like come on people like jump on board it's not like everyone should come to you and say answer all our questions right now it's more like well no no we might need you on board to go and do research as well or ask right. questions talk to people right and then help out rather than read a book and be like okay this is going to answer all my questions it's right. almost like you're posing a whole new way of like living a life but not living but rather kind of exploring a life or, or understanding or understanding yeah, yeah. that everyone needs to be on board with well you know there's been a lot of the, I mean to finish the Franz Duvall story yeah. when I got that final email from him I, I said you know that's so kind of you to say this can I quote you publicly saying this And he said, sure, you can use it as a blurb if you want. Oh, really? So that blurb, if anyone has our book, you look on the cover or the back cover, and there's Franz Duvall saying exactly what I just quoted him. And, and uh, that was because he didn't get bent out of shape that I disagreed with him. And then we've okay. become friends. We've, gotcha. we've gone out to lunch several times and we, we hang out. So, you know, yeah. there, there are people, the, the kind of support you're talking about has come more from journalists really than from scientists i found and the, the the issue here is that if you have journalist support a lot of people will believe a claim if there is like some kind of academic journals that are publishing stuff and writing about this kind of stuff rather than journalists supporting it which makes it more of like you know a novel rather than an actual scientific yeah paperwork. yeah right? but, but see the way we wrote the book And, and this is a strategic thing we had to think about uh, from the beginning. Exactly. It's like, are we going to try to go through academic channels, get peer-reviewed articles, build up uh, a history? Yeah. And yeah. you know, why not go there? Because that would take a lifetime. <laughs> a, <laughs> B, because I don't teach at Harvard or Princeton or Yale, and I yeah. don't have the pressure. See, if I were teaching at a place like that, I would be required to publish three, four, five, six papers okay. per year okay. just to like stay on the tenure track and gotcha. you know because that's the way it works okay i'm i'm not i i okay. don't i don't even yeah. want to you know so but what you were saying is that you would be totally open of if someone who's in that field was to take an idea like this and they can run it and start releasing like papers and well, pe people are yeah okay, i mean well, people great. are yeah. those and are the people we out. Yeah, those are the people we cite in the book. You know, Meredith Chivers with her stuff on, you know, female erotic plasticity. That's right. And That's right. yeah. uh, Todd Shackelford, his uh, sperm semen displacement theory, you know, where he made these dildos and, and, and fake vaginas and squirted fake semen in and saw how Just, each okay, thrust yeah. displaced, you know. I mean, there are lots of people doing work that we draw on for the book. And we, you know, we hope we, you know, support them. We show how relevant yeah, yeah. their work is in a larger theoretical model. But I mean, I made the decision very early on. I wasn't going to be an academic. I wasn't going to. So I just, 
jumped over that whole process right. straight to gotcha. the public, which is why the book's written in a more you know readable style. Which I personally prefer, and a some lot people, of people do. Would. Yeah. yeah, and most people do. But I think you know, I read just a couple of days ago somebody tweeted, uh, uh, actually a, a playwright tweeted um, that she was reading the book, and it sounded like a moderately intelligent frat boy. <laughs> Were you ever a frat boy? I was. I was the anti-frat boy. I was. I was hated oh. by. I received death threats from the frats at my little oh. college. Speaking uh, of misreading a person, I, yeah. Okay, well. Yeah. So not everyone loves loves the writing style. I have to say. Oh boy, uh, uh, what do you think about uh, uh, speaking of Buddhism? You mentioned Buddhism. Like, here's a, a group of people who are like no sex at all. Right? Who Buddhists? Yeah. No. What do you mean, really? Oh yeah, there. In fact, there's a whole the whole tantric oh, the Buddhism, tantric. you know. Oh, of course. And, and there was a, a famous uh, Buddha somewhere in the lineage who who practiced, you know, finding enlightenment Bliss. through but pleasure. But for them, and sex. It, well, the way I understand tantra, it's all about delaying. You know, well, the, but you're the, delaying it as a way of prolonging the the pleasure and the experience, which is just taking it to a whole other level, right? You okay. know, and and you know the famous Om Mani Padme Om chant of yep, you yep. know that means the jewel at the heart of the lotus, right? All right, and the lotus is the pussy. Yeah, so, which I think you talked about in the book. Do right? we? Where, uh, no, I remember you talking. Oh, maybe it was just one of our conversations. Yeah, I don't point. remember. Ivan and I have done road trips, so yeah. <laughs> he's heard all my all my stories. Yeah, I'm looking forward to those stories one day being uh, <laughs> publicly available. Publicly available. Yeah, when I'm because, dead, <laughs> <laughs> we'll do the, the the special when he's dead podcast. Or you can have all your stories in fine print on your tombstone one day, like really, really fine. No, there's not going to be a tombstone. Oh yeah. No, no, no. But then where are those? Okay, well, never mind. <laughs> okay, what else can we talk? Uh, my, my body will be eaten by chimps. <laughs> I, oh, that's a great... Not bonobos or they, bonobo? bonobos? Bonobos. Yeah. Yeah, bonobos do eat meat. Okay. They, they occasionally... Make a statement. And when you're dead, feed meat to bonobos. <laughs> Assuming they'd be interested. I, I think they might not. Yeah, yeah, gnarly old white guy. I don't think so. You might be surprised. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, omnivores right. and stuff. All right, move along. Move along. Omnivores and vegetarianism. How about this? Suppose, suppose, like uh, the whole. Uh, I love the the metaphor of vegetarianism and omnivores, right? And how it's one of those. Where it's like choose to be a vegetarian, you can live a really healthy lifestyle. But suppose someone was born into a family where the person was shamed around eating meat all their life. Right. You know, and then as a result of being shamed around it, they grow up and all of a sudden they're like, oh, you know, screw it. I'm going to eat meat. So it ends up being more of a, a rebellion against vegetarianism. Well, you see that all the time, that's right? Really, exactly. Catholic and, girls. And that's, yeah. that's what the song's so, about. So I think a lot of people, that's a lot of people would see that as kind of more like, well, we're naturally, you know, vegetarian. But the whole omnivore is just the shame. If if I, you know, it's, it's kind of like the whole not wanting to be monogamous might be more uh, like a lot of people I think would claim this, where they'd be like, you know, this is like, you know, when someone wants to see other people, etc., etc. Uh, of course, I'm not sure if there's any, you know, grounds to support this claim, but it seems that a lot of people believe this, which is kind of like if someone wants more than one person, it's more of a result of them having this odd, you know, 
upbringing where they're reacting and wanting to, you know, being afraid of getting hurt or being afraid oh, of right. who knows what not. So the, they have a Peter Pan complex. <laughs> they can't commit. They, they won't exactly, mature. Exactly, yeah, right? Yeah, Instead of realizing. Exactly, yeah. right? So, yeah, thoughts on that? Well, I did a TV show recently in L.A., and, and after the show ended, two of the there, there were two guys on the panel, and they said, you know, one of the guys said, you know, I enjoyed your book, but I'm completely monogamous. I'm, I'm completely happy, and I've got no interest in yeah. anyone else. And, and the other guy said, yeah, me too. And I was like, oh, good. Good for you guys, you know. And, um, and, and one of the guys said, yeah, well, that's two against one. <laughs> so we must be right. I was like, well, all right, first of all, I don't think that's how it works. You know what? Secondly, but then I said to them, um, so do you guys look at porn at all? And they're like, yeah, of course. I said, do you always look at the same woman? Like, uh, no. Uh -huh. So what's that tell you? Right? What the hell does that tell you? So fine. Choose to live monogamously. Fine. You know, you and your wife don't have a thing where that's possible. Fine. Yeah. Hey, great. Right. And you don't want to because you're making a risk benefit analysis. Yeah, guess, guess, yeah. But don't tell me you don't yeah. think about it. You is, know, is Come I, on. Yeah, is I, uh, two to one reminded me of a story where Einstein, I think, was uh, when he was uh, first presenting one of his theories and some some bunch of scientists got together and they're like some, they wrote like a hundred different reviews or a hundred different people wrote. And he's like, right. we don't need a hundred people. It's like, if I'm wrong. I just need it one. It takes one. <laughs> exactly. It just takes one like, to show. Like, why? It's yeah. not a popularity contest here, right? Yeah, and the fact that they feel the need to gather 100 signatures tells you yeah. something. Something interesting along those lines oh, just happened with Richard Dawkins. Oh, really? Uh, and E.O. Wilson, two of the most famous biologists alive today. Wilson um, has recently... Wilson sort of is the godfather of evolutionary psychology. He's the first person who said... You know, our brains and behavior have been shaped by the same evolutionary factors and forces that have shaped our bodies. So he really started the whole movement of what we're doing today, right? All right. And, uh, and of course, Dawkins is the author of The Selfish Gene yeah. and, and lots of other books, very distinguished. And so recently, you know, there's, a, there's always been a big debate in biology about altruism and, and how is altruism possible? Why would I risk myself to help you? We're not related. So there's no, there's no evolutionary benefit to me in helping you at any, at any cost to myself. So there are all sorts of theories that you'll keep track and return the favor someday or, you know, whatever. But I'll always be much more likely to help a brother or a cousin or, or something, yeah. you know. So there's all this uh, fitness theory and all this stuff. Anyway, Wilson recently has changed his mind and said, no, I think that Actually, they're multi-level selection, and so it's not just selection at the individual or the gene level. It's also at a group level. So I'm going to help people that I consider part of my community. Fair enough, fair you know? Now, the the hardcore biologist, the the sort of um, you know the, the the what's the word the purists like yeah, yeah. like Dawkins went nuts and they say he's like senile he's losing his mind and dawkins like got together you know a hundred scientists to sign this thing saying that oh, uh, wilson da, da, da. exactly the oh, same really? thing yeah and wilson i think wilson even referred to the story you're talking oh, about hilarious. in his response is like come on guys well, really? the way i would understand this is it's like if we're talking about us being in close connection with the immediate environment that we're in 
it's almost like when we are surrounded in this big environment where there's you know millions of people around us we would more likely be to relate to people who we know and which is usually family if you're lucky right. enough to have a good family right, right. and uh, and then relate to whoever knows your family or your friends or whatever and then that's your little tribe almost and so who is not out whoever's outside of that is you, you literally are not uh what's the word um you're not wired to be able to deal with dealing like with being able to be altruistic to people more right. than or is that yeah that's that, Dunbar's number the, yeah yeah exactly so like wouldn't that wouldn't that be, make sense that if you step out out onto the street in the middle of a city that altruism it might be hard just because we were not evolved to be in that kind of environment we weren't evolved to be in that kind of environment but what Wilson and others argue and I, I'm partial to their view is that we were we have evolved to be altruistic so okay. that feeling that behavior can be applied to people that we don't know you're walking down a street okay imagine you step out into yeah. the streets of vancouver you're walking down the street yeah. you see a little kid you've never seen before in your life three yeah. years old about to run into traffic are you going to stand there and watch if you can take two steps and grab him come on you're going to grab him yeah. right yeah so even, you know, you're not going to think. You're just going to respond. Exactly. Okay, I got you. So at some risk to yourself. Now, you might not run across traffic to, to do it. But if, if he's close, you're not even going to think about it. Right? Yeah. So, you know, we, we pick up other people's babies. We hold one another's babies. Gotcha. You know, new mothers hand their baby to a stranger. Okay. You know, okay. that never happens with chimps. Chimps never hand their baby to another chimp, even if it's a chimp they've known their whole lives. It's because chimps, you know, very often kill one another's babies. Bonobos never do. Okay. Right? So you can say that there are these, these behaviors, these sort of uh, feelings have evolved that yeah. can, be, can be applied in this context, even though this context never existed. Okay. okay so, okay. I mean, clearly we evolved to love. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And here we are. I mean, you could meet somebody in a cafe tonight and a week later you could be convinced you love her and maybe you really yep, do, yep. you know? Yeah. You never, you know, that certainly didn't happen in, you know, our ancestral past. You weren't running into strangers and falling in love. Okay. Who? this just, I just went two places here and then I forgot both things. All right. While you think of it, I'll tell an Einstein story, my favorite Einstein story. All right. So Einstein was at a press conference or something, uh, you know, presenting one of his revolutionary theories and his wife was with him. And one of the journalists, you know, sort of a, as a lark said to the wife, uh, what do you think about all this? And she said, oh, you know, I don't really understand relativity, but. I know Albert, and you can trust him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I like that. Well, all I can say is I've kind of got to know Chris, and um, so far he's made a whole lot of sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Not that uh, I'm your wife or anything. No. Here's a, here's a quote from Wilson, who we were just talking about, okay. that I really like. Um, he said, we exist in a bizarre combination of stone-aged emotions, medieval beliefs, and godlike technology. Oh, whoa, wow. Isn't that great? Yeah. Yeah. And then Gregory Bateson, very interesting scientist who was married to Margaret Mead for a while, the famous anthropologist. He said, the major problems of the world are the result of the difference between the way nature works and the way people think. So those, the, to me, those two quotes really sum up a lot about. Yeah, it seems to me. I, I, I like that, and it seems to me that it's almost like this is 
basically uh, we're in a position where whoever is wanting to think about these things is up needs to take on a, a pretty solid task it's like it's not about just someone serving a whole bunch of solutions for you it's like people need to actually start using their you know uh what's the word um their heads their noggins yeah yeah <laughs> they're everything you know and just and just start and just start working with everything that like all these all, all first of all the information all that they intuitively believe how how to work with all this and then like get on board with all this and start thinking about it and start, yeah. you know rather than just kind of like dismissing the ideas be like open and be like okay well there's a question there okay what does that mean rather than just be like no that's just you know i'm not even going to talk about it yeah i mean i think i think we need to you know i think on one level it's very complicated as you say because yeah, there's very. so much there are all these you know different sources of data and it's all sort of conjecture anyway because yeah. nobody we don't have a time machine to go back thirty thousand yeah. years and see so what we do in the book is we look at four major sources of information and that's right yeah. we find that they converge on a particular vision of human prehistory right we look at anthropology primatology human anatomy and contemporary research and psychosexuality. So those four things, to, from our perspective, seem to all converge on this one vision of a sort of casually sexual past for our species. Yeah, yeah. Again, not saying that you know every tribe was having an orgy around the fire every night, simply that uh, long-term sexual monogamy does not appear to have been the way our ancestors oh, lived, yeah. neither the men nor the women. What what which you, people find very yeah, threatening, yeah, you know, yeah. some people. But what do you think of the pair bond, though, to a certain level? Well, see, that's what we were right. talking about a minute ago. Love. Love is different from sex. Yeah, right? okay. So I do, I really, I think there's no question that we are an extremely loving species. Yeah, we yeah. have a capacity yeah. for love. And that love can be very much focused on individual people, right? But when there's, once there's no threat or fear around what that pair bond means... Like, well, it seems that in our society, once that pair bond's established, there's all these threats around it. Oh, my God. When am I going to lose it? You've like, got something to lose. Yeah. 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 So as soon as that's introduced, then we're working in a totally different context, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, honestly, I think, I mean, well, this, this sort of gets more spiritual and what love is and, you know, all that kind of thing. But, but I think it's important to understand that love is not sex. And... So we sort of make this assumption that anytime there's love, there's going to be an impulse towards sexual control of that person. Oh, right. Okay. Right. And yet we don't have that about friends. We don't, you know, we love a friend, but we don't say, I wish you wouldn't sleep with, so, you know, like it wouldn't even occur to us. Yeah. Right. We don't have that about our kids or our yeah. cousins or our brothers or sisters. Yeah. You know, we love lots of people without yeah. ever really thinking about their sex yeah, life yeah, yeah. or feeling we have any right to exercise yeah. control over it. So why is it that there's that one relationship I, that's the exception? The way, the way I would see it, and I always talk about this myself, is that I usually see humans as like pretty complex you know, beings that have a whole range of different core needs that they need to meet. And it seems to me that when people get involved or like married or get into a pair bond relationship, they almost expect or it's expected that this, you know, partner needs to meet all of your needs. Right. And once that's introduced, then you're in a, a bit of a losing game because a 
the other person cannot meet all your needs. It just doesn't work that way. Right. It's not only a burden that it's not. It's not only that it's a burden that's placed on the person, but it's actually like practical, practically impossible to right. achieve. Right. Right. So it's one of those. Is for me is like whether it's sex, whether it's companionship, right. whether it's right. uh, whatever it is that the, sure. the, 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 the people can work on together. In a tribal system, as you said, is like like these needs would be taken care of by the whole community, right? right? So yeah. it's like in that case, the pair bond can function in a way where they're still working good as a unit, right? Which is what we function well in, right? But it's not like that the, the, they're expected to like uh, get everything uh, like all these needs met just through that one interaction. Exactly the point. You know, that's the point Dan Savage makes a lot okay. that ha- opening up a relationship a little bit, or at least acknowledging at least acknowledging that you know you said you know the the pair bond the the partner is expected to meet all your needs well what if your one of your needs is for erotic novelty right that there's is, no way i know your partner's going to become another person every no. few months yeah. you know just to get yeah. you off you know she's blonde oh you want to present and then you want tall and then you it's like yeah. that ain't well, gonna people happen try role plays to a certain degree but, well exactly and, and i think that's that one exists. of the reasons yeah. and that's why you know women's yeah. fashion is all about changing your look every six months or something you, you know and <laughs> you're smelling different with different perfumes and different hairstyles and this and that well not to mention perfumes in the first place why not just enjoy that one smell that's given to you if you're we love it we love it yeah yeah okay so anyway so you're right it's absolutely impossible but either one of the counterintuitive things that dan savage talks about and actually uh, a review one of the reviews of our books of our book that i really liked was from uh, aol lemon drop i don't know it's an online thing and she said uh it was written by a woman and she said the ideas in this book could save your marriage and you know that's counterintuitive but it's true if you accept this stuff as the sort of base yeah then it's a lot easier to deal with what comes up, right? It's like, as from a woman's perspective, if you accept that he's interested in other women and that's just yeah. part of his yeah. nature, yeah. then you're not going to feel threatened that he looks at other women. You'll yeah. say, well, that's normal. Of course he looks Which at means, other women. Yeah, yeah. Right? And vice versa. It's like, yeah, she. it's her nature to be yeah. attracted to other men, yeah, dude. Yeah. It's not an indictment of you. It doesn't yeah, mean there's something wrong with you. It just means... She's a human being. So that's, you know, that you asked earlier, you started this whole thing about the prescriptive versus descriptive nature of yeah. what we're doing. And that's all we really want to, that's the only advice we give to people yeah. is like, just back off, back, chill yeah. out. You know, yeah. it's like you are an animal. She's an animal. Everybody's animals. So let's give ourselves a break here, you know? Yeah. It happens. We're animals. You know, your, your cat scratches yourself occasionally. Well, but you know, he's a cat. isn't the guy supposed to sleep out in the rain, though? <laughs> if, yeah, yeah, that's right. So... That seems, anyways. But that that's that's are, are I think gonna, the biggest challenge. Are we going to cut to uh, when a man loves a woman? Yeah, the thing the thing for me is that it's one of those. It's almost two different types of thoughts that people have. Which is one of those is like if the guy's not there and like valuing me exactly for who I am and doesn't see any other woman, it's such a strong frame. It's such a strong belief that for people when 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 people yeah. come out and say what you're saying right now, it's that I think is the biggest. If you may, a paradigm shift almost for yeah. people to kind of like accept and even be able to like look through that lens, right? Which, in my opinion, I actually agree with you. Is like seeing it through that lens, and every time when people actually kind of like open up, get get more uh, connected to talking about it, like where they're like, let's just be real, open, and talk about this. It's it's there's no prescription to like one outcome. 
But right. the thing is that the outcomes that come out through behaving or thinking or acting, if you may, through that way, are so much more rewarding as a, as a, as an end result than functioning through the like. No, you're going to be a man, and you're going to, or you're going to be a woman. Like everyone has their own version. Right. Where you just stick to this idea. Right. Right. And and it's kind of one of those. Where it's kind of almost like proposing the idea of like, as you said, take a step back, and just. Like, see what, like, uh, where the other person's coming from. Like, right. can you actually listen to hear that the other, that the, the guy might just, that it might just be okay that there's different things that you don't believe in that are going on. And just by accepting that, worlds might change without even necessarily having to go, like, lengths. You like do right. crazy You don't have things. to do anything. No, I know. Just, 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 just that, talking about yeah, it. Yeah, just so talking many, about it, yeah. I talked about emails earlier. Another one I love yeah. is the couples who, who have written to us saying, oh, we read your book together. Like, one couple were, were trekking in New Zealand. Oh, yeah, you were telling me about that. And, and he's, this is, I got it from the guy, and he said, you know, we were trekking in New Zealand, and it rained and rained and rained, so we spent a lot of time in our tent. And we had your book on our iPhone, and so we would like, because it hurt our eyes to read too long, so we would pass it back and forth and read each, wow. each page out loud. And he said it changed our relationship, and we're wow. so happy, and da, da, da. And it's like, that must be, that's great. Yeah. But, but my point is, again, related to what you're saying, yeah. it's like what that couple chooses yeah. to do with this information is going to be unique to that couple, to that couple and exactly. unique to this moment in their lives. Yep. Five years from now, they might do something completely different, different yeah, right? Because sure, sure. they've got kids now, or they're tired, or they, you know, they're, they're sick of it, or they've, you know, wh- whatever, you know, you choose your path step by step. Yeah. And, and if someone tells you where to go, ignore them. Because gotcha. they're not walking in your shoes, right? Gotcha. They don't know. It, what's that great line, admire? Admire him who seeks the truth and fear him who claims to have found it. All right. Wow. Yeah. So I don't claim to have found it, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, you've made that pretty clear. And I think it's a, it's a really great idea to keep it open-ended because that's the whole idea. Right. Like keeping exactly. it open-ended is kind of like being like, what can the other person also bring onto the table and right. what can I give? And where do we meet in between, right? If they see our book as a tool, I hope they see it as a reader, see it as a yeah. flashlight, not a map. Yeah, okay. I, this reminds me of a quote. I don't remember who wrote it, but I read it. It's like, uh, the journey of a man and a woman is uh, flowing of two rivers that constantly meander, meet at ends, and then separate and meet yeah. again. And that's a lifelong journey. Can be. Can, can be, can be, or maybe the rivers part. Part, yeah. You know, which yeah. back to Margaret Mead, who was married to Gregory Bateson, who I quoted earlier. She was at a press conference for one of her books. Of course, for people who don't know this, Margaret Mead was the most famous anthropologist of the 20th century. She wrote um, Coming of Age in Samoa in the 20s, which our book, some people have said, is sort of a modern reflection of her book because she uh, spent time in Samoa and uh, interviewed women there who talked about how sexually free they were and how sex was a not a shameful thing and so she wrote this book about it and everyone was shocked and you know outraged and it became a big deal and there's a whole industry built up around discrediting her and and making her seem foolish and anyway um, she was at a press conference and someone said, uh, you know, who are you to, to talk about relationships? You, you've had three failed marriages. And she said, uh, excuse me, I've been married to three wonderful men who all remain all right. my close friends. None of those was a failure. 
Wow. You know, so in your river image, you know, gotcha. sometimes the rivers part. And, 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 and you know, and that's it, not a tragedy necessarily. And the way, the way I would see that, it come back to what I was saying earlier around, is that maybe they have recognized throughout their journey, whatever it is, that they function really well through specific interaction that doesn't involve the pair bond. So they, if they can, if their connection is still really close, they can still maintain their relationship in a way where it's not a marriage thing, but they're exactly. close in their lives. They're exactly. still connected. Talking it transforms. About stuff. It transforms, and it can be in the domain of, you know, we work together, or we're yeah. good friends. I can tell that person anything. Well, I've I, my most recent ex. Peggy uh, is now one of my best friends in the yeah, world same, and Tara. like a sister. Yeah, yeah like Tara, like yeah, I've met yours. And, and as with your situation with your ex, she's with a great guy, yeah, which makes just, it a lot easier. And they just announced their, uh, engagement, their engagement. Yeah. And all my friends are like, oh, even how's that feeling? And I'm like, you know, it's funny. Like, I have other things that are worrying me, but this one is not worrying me. I'm actually... It's wonderful. I think it's great. She's like, with someone, a good guy. She's someone happy. Someone who I care for, yeah. someone who I want the best for is actually getting what's best for them. Yeah. And I'm going to sabotage that. Right. Of, like, right. How does that hurt you? How does that... <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and that's another big, big oh, yeah. thing that we talk gotcha. about in the book and that also I think is applicable to life in general, sort of like the finite and infinite games thing. It's zero-sum thinking versus right. non-zero-sum thinking, gotcha. right? Which is really sort of like, you know, finite game that you're going to win or yeah. Yeah. infinite game you want to keep playing. You know, if you think in zero-sum terms, everybody else's gain is your loss, that's a shitty way to live. It is a lose-lose, yeah. It's a shitty yeah. way to live. It means you end up resenting everyone you love. Because it didn't if, go your if way. If they're successful, yeah. you know, if their life is good. It's like, what a fucked up way to approach yeah, life. But that's right. what our society teaches us, you know? It's pretty dominant as well. It's, it's pretty, pretty dominant, effective. yeah. Yeah. So, um... I'll be careful about drinking that beer, because... Well, anyways... We should get the... the the opening on yeah okay well if we're don't get it in your mic oh there it is. nice <laughs> pbr pass blue ribbon the ultimate ironic hipster beer you know why it's ironic hipster beer i didn't even know it was oh yeah it is it is i mean why? i grew up P pbr pass blue ribbon is like working class industrial beer right it comes from milwaukee i think wisconsin yeah milwaukee okay now i think of milwaukee i've never been to milwaukee so maybe people listening in milwaukee are gonna get pissed off here but i think industrial midwest factories you know butcher you know what are they called where they butcher all the cattle the slaughterhouses That's where it happens. Know, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's midwest it's it's industry i grew up around pittsburgh I, you know smokestacks and burning rivers and that sort of shit so it's not in other words it's not like you know the pristine waters of colorado going into this beer it's <laughs> you know three-eyed fish are swimming in the water that goes oh, into this beer you yeah. think they filter it I don't know, but but the point is, it's industrial beer. It's not, you it's know, beer thing, from glacial-fed yeah, rivers yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah, so that's why it's ironic hipster beer because it's it's like you know, at le you know, at least there's a choice. Like I actually spent uh, what three years in a socialist environment before, uh, and, and, and what is it, ex Yugoslavia before, right. it went and and uh, there they would just have one beer. That's all you get. And how was it? 
Oh, you were a kid. You probably didn't. No, know there are people that just drink. That's another thing. I, I I came here when I was like 18 and a half, mm. and I drank. It was just a not not an issue. So I got here, and I'm about to turn 19, which is like an age where everyone can start finally drinking here. Uh-huh. And people came to me, and they're like, "Are you ready to get completely destroyed?" with alcohol and i was just like oh really like what do you mean it's like i've never been i've never been drunk or anything like that ever. right and then when i realized what a big deal it is here but i was raised in an environment where you just kind of drink you know you with just family oh yeah you do so you drank around meals and stuff oh yeah like all the time. oh yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so and it was usually just one choice <laughs> well you know i i would have thought that communist beer sucked but i was in laos a few years ago where they only have one beer beer lao no. and it's actually really good yeah I remember and it's that. cheap it's pretty good yeah you know and then i was in czechoslovakia when that was still communist uh that's how old i am i was i, I was in czechoslovakia and east germany about two months before the wall came down oh wow just missed uh, the big party huh but yeah i, I was in um in uh what's the big city uh, prague and people drink beer for breakfast. They drink, you know, it's just amazing the beer, and it's delicious. It was really good beer, and I, I'm not even a huge beer fan. But it's way better than PBR, Milwaukee. I'm sorry. And and, and while we're talking about beer, one of my favorite like American arrogant stories is there's this ancient beer in in Czechoslovakia called Budvar, right? Okay. And uh, it was like one of the first beer companies ever from 15 something or other right it's they've been brewing beer in pilsen right where pilsner comes okay. from right and but the american company budweiser when they started exporting to europe they started a lawsuit against this company uh for copyright violation because, because. budvar was too close to budweiser and they and the american company owned the name budweiser Right. Interesting. And so there's this little Czech company that's been there for five centuries brewing this beer. And suddenly these American assholes come in with a lawsuit saying, no, you know, it's too close to Budweiser and blah, blah, blah. And, and when? No. What happened was it, you know, early Internet days, it uh, became an Internet sensation. People were outraged. It became a huge public relations nightmare. So now if you're in Europe and you want to drink that American beer, it's called Bud. It's not called Budweiser. Oh. The whole thing blew up in their faces. So they can't call it Budweiser. They didn't nice. stop the other company. And it probably promoted the other company even more. Well, and it's much better it's beer. Good. I mean, Budweiser's a good beer, well, you know, as opposed to the fucking <laughs> bullshit American beer. All right. So, uh, you know, one thing I realized during our break was that, uh, you know, we were chatting about stuff and some, you said some funny things. And, and I kept thinking, oh, don't say that. Save it. Save it. Yeah, we it's have like, to shut up there. Yeah, now that I'm doing a podcast, it's like every good conversation, I feel like a porn star having sex off camera. It's yeah. like, save that precious stuff there, man. <laughs> you know, don't just mm-hmm. squirt that out for free. Get that on the podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. So um, we're going to we're gonna wrap this one up. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, my first podcast experience, uh, at least on my own podcast, I've done lots of others. And uh, uh, a few words about who Yvonne is. Uh, last year, I swear, when it, we've been so lucky with this book. And one of the most wonderful things that happened was that last year we got some emails from people saying, you know, hey, we'd, we'd love to have you come to town and talk about the book. And what would it take? You know, how much money? How can you schedule it? What's going on? And, you know, normally 
in the old days, a publisher would pay for a publicity tour, but these days publishers don't pay for yeah, shit. Yeah, that's an odd one, eh? Yeah, no. They, you know, I, I asked them if there was going to be a launch party in New York, and I could practically hear them <laughs> laughing from Spain. You know, like, a whole launch party. Isn't that funny? You <laughs> oh, think we so still cute. do launch parties for your <laughs> shitty little book? Oh, and you want to go on a speaking tour? Oh, you're cute. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, our publisher Amazing. didn't really throw in a lot for that, but... Uh, but we, yeah, like I said, we were so lucky because people wrote to us. So one of the first people who wrote to us was Yvonne and uh, didn't know the guy at all. He set up our gig in, in Vancouver, which then I used as sort of um, uh, a hub, a hub or a, an anchor, you anchor? know, like an anchor. Because then if like, OK, if I'm definitely going to do this thing in Vancouver, right. then there's Seattle, then there's Portland, yeah, then there's yeah. San Francisco and, you know, so on. So I sort of filled in the dates around this thing that you set up here in Vancouver. So, uh, yeah, I owe it all to Yvonne. If I yeah. ever have a, a child, I'll, I'll name it Yvonne. For real? Whatever the hell your last name is. Well, there's the whole Ivan and then keeps going from there. Yeah. So be careful yeah. with that. But so that's who Yvonne is. And Yvonne is also a, a wonderful musician, singer, songwriter, uh, fashion model, uh, what else do you do? I've I've uh, fashion model. I've, I've done a lot of productions. Eh, that's yeah. what I really like to do. Yeah. Um, so tell people your website so they can the, see your the face. One, the, the, I've uh, so Ivan Tukakov is i v a n t u c a k o v dot com, which leads pretty much to my music ventures, which is a band called Tambora Rasa, and that's sort of a collective of musicians that uh, I work with to create. A uh, whole bunch of different styles of music that span from like Spanish flamenco to Balkan, uh, over like Middle East and Turkish, and then we play with Indian classical, African, and it's like big fusion music. Yeah. And then there's the whole thing which I ran your web uh, event through, which is through the whole yes to connection dot com. Yes to connection dot com. Which is which right? is something that I like to write about, and then I have a blog, and I uh, wrote a blog about your book as well, uh, which is more around how humans connect. And that's what put us together in a way where once Chris moved to Vancouver here to spend the summer with Cassie and uh, we talked a lot about it. But my main interest is how, like, especially through what you're writing and your interest is how does your research contribute to how humans connect together? And that's a big passion of mine as well. So I really like to uh, venture into those areas. And as a result of you living here, like, hell, you know, I have recording equipment as a result of doing all this music productions and we talk about these things because we're both interested in the subject so much so it might as well uh start this podcast so it's great it's actually really exciting that it's coming together yeah, yeah. okay well thank you for listening everybody assuming this this actually goes out on the yep. airwaves or whatever but they're called I have in the a podcast feeling it might and uh, we're gonna we're gonna end this here. And a uh, uh, final comment that there's uh, that review that we want to comment on, which we're gonna post on. Yeah, we're gonna separate. Yeah, we're gonna do a separate podcast uh, in response to a review that people keep asking me to respond to, and I'm resisting it. Yeah. So uh, we're gonna do a, a separate uh, special podcast that you can listen to that won't be part of the weekly uh, the run of podcast, but it'll be on the web page. Uh, which I don't know what the webpage is going to be called yet, but you'll be able to find it through sexatdawn.com. <laughs> By the time you hear this, there will be a webpage. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, hope the workout's going well at the gym or the commute or the uh, beach. 
the beach or that you're successfully pretending to be working while you listen to this. <laughs> Thanks a lot. See you next week. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Send it for a headstone Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.